Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. This evening, we will have the opportunity to really wrap up our reflections on Abraham. You know, Abraham takes up, I think, almost 13 chapters of the book of Genesis. So certainly, in talking about Abraham over the past few months, we have been talking about if not one of the central figures, the central figure in the book of Genesis. And rightfully so, because once we understand that the Abrahamic covenant is so foundational to our faith, will we better understand what our faith is about? Certainly as Christ has just not come to fulfill the promise made to Abraham, but at once transform it. We often look at our study of the Old and New Testament as a study of the, the promise and fulfillment structure. And yeah, I get that because it is. But we have to reach deeper and understand that as Christ has come to establish the church, it is just not about what Christ came to fulfill, but also as he transforms it, we share in that transformation. We share in that mission of evangelization and catechesis. So I speak to that now because there is a direct link in what we do today to what we are studying in the book of Genesis. That is, uh, this great figure of Abraham, this great patriarch Abraham. Now, rounding off our treatment of the Abraham narrative uh, this evening is a genealogy of the patriarch's offspring in Genesis 25. In Genesis 25. So in the first six verses, you have the six sons by Keturah, okay, as Abraham marries Keturah here in in Genesis 25, one by Hagar, verses 12 to 18, and then one by Sarah, verse 19. And in between verses, I think it's what, 7 to 11, we have a short account of Abraham's death and burial at 175 years of age. We're actually going to spend quite a bit of time with that this evening because I think there's a salient truth underneath those series of verses when you put them in the context of the much larger narrative of the book of Genesis. You have heard me say time and time again, if you're going to understand what one verse means in the book of Genesis, consider its context, consider the larger whole of the book of Genesis, right? Because there you will come to discover uh, the beauty that we are made to encounter as we peel back the layers of these verses. So now as we speak to uh, the figure of Abraham, I want to jump to verse 5, because in verse 5, we have a bit of an opening to talk about blessings and birthrights in the book of Genesis. Verse 5, we read, and it's very simple, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Now, the Ignatius commentary, uh, the Ignatius Catholic study Bible that we have been pulling from in our treatment of Genesis offers up a beautiful topical essay, and I wanted to kind of draw from this and explore what we intend to mean when we talk about blessings and birthrights. Uh, Genesis 
gives considerable attention to families and family life. This is a point that we have established for sure. Time and again, we read the storyline twists and turns around the action of of fathers and mothers, of husbands and wives, of uncles and nephews, of of brothers and sisters. And really, I think we can all identify with that, right? (laughs) I mean, if you're anything like me, the twists and turns of your own life is very much caught up in these relationships. I'm one of 11 kids, okay? And so as one of 11 kids, certainly much of the drama that surrounds me is tied to to my siblings. And as they are tied to my siblings, they are also tied to nieces and, and nephews and, and so on and so forth. huh? And I'm just not talking about you know negative drama, right? But just the drama that is the narrative that surrounds us. So what we encounter every day is not so different than what they encountered, what, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. So this is not extraordinary in itself. But as we go through the book of Genesis, we can see a distinct pattern emerging in Genesis that for the most part runs counter, we could say, to, to the social and, and, and domestic customs of the biblical world. I mean, several times we read in Genesis that God bypasses a firstborn son so as to bless one of his younger siblings instead. This is something that we will talk about in greater detail as we go deeper into Abraham's family. And this really was highly highly irregular in ancient tribal societies where firstborn sons were entitled by their position and their birth order to numerous family privileges that were just simply not shared by their other siblings. Their firstborn, for example, was destined to receive a special blessing from his father. And part of that blessing was what but to inherit the largest share of his father's estate. In many ways, he was seen as a as a kind of father figure, right, to his brothers, because he stood in line to be the next leader, to be the next protector, to be the next teacher of the family, if you will. I mean, I was just watching the, uh, the movie The Mummy, right? And, and it's another movie that captures this ancient truth, this ancient truth that is tied to the firstborn blessing. What's more, and many ancient civilizations capture this, Firstborn sons in the patriarchal age would succeed their fathers in assuming priestly responsibilities in family life. Essentially, my friends, in all respects, the eldest son who became the patriarch was the social and, uh, we could say, spiritual mainstay of the kinship group gathered around him. Now, this is all relevant because you do see this shift in the book of Genesis, Only three firstborn sons in the book of Genesis show themselves worthy of such blessings. And we have talked about all of them. In Genesis 5, verses 28 to 30, we saw this blessing transferred to Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 10, and and Genesis 9, verse 26, we saw this blessing to Shem, transferred to Shem. And of course, in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we saw this with Abraham. But... Every other identifiable firstborn is passed over and loses his uh, preeminent, we could say, position to a younger brother. That's what makes the narrative of salvation history so unique. And of course, as many of us know, often the eldest sons in Genesis were what? (laughs) But very prideful and ultimately unworthy of the honors that awaited them. So in effect, 
As the Ignatius commentary highlights, they disqualified themselves from their natural birthright. Other times, we could say the question of guilt or culpability more or less just goes unmentioned, and, and God just simply lects the younger son over the older to carry his plan forward. Whatever the case, it is clear that when you look at the firstborn blessing and you look at birthright, God's preference for the younger and weaker brother over the older and stronger brother is pronounced and really does offer for us, and this is why I speak to this now, a significant subplot in the book of Genesis. I mean, if you were to consider, you have six times this pattern repeating itself in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, we have Abel being favored over Cain, the firstborn of Adam. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 18 to 21, what have we been talking about? But Isaac being favored over Ishmael, of course, who was the firstborn son of Abraham. We will be reading here in future weeks, Jacob being favored over Esau, Esau who was the firstborn of Isaac. Perez is favored over Zerah. Zerah was the firstborn of Judah by Tamar. And maybe the most famous of all of them, Joseph. Joseph, who was favored over Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. What about Ephraim, who was favored over Manasseh, the firstborn of Joseph? So time and time again, what you see is this firstborn blessing being handed on to the younger brother. And now to the big question of why, well, I think we've already tapped into it by using the words younger and weaker, right? What do we read in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are those who are pure of heart. Blessed are those who are meek. We read these Beatitudes, and as we read these blessings, we are mindful that those who live out a life of Beatitude ultimately find themselves in favorable standing with God. Who are those who are in favorable standing with God? But the innocent, as the Beatitudes highlight, the meek, those who would embrace their filial relationship with God. It's not all about being strong and powerful as much as it is about being poor in spirit, leaning into God for all that we are and all that we do. That is what blessing is about. So in many ways, what we have in this narrative, in this book of Genesis, specific to blessings and birthright and this great subplot and how the firstborn blessing actually goes to six of the younger children, we have there is an anticipation of the Beatitudes. All right, that being said, let us turn to Genesis 25, and the verses I want to read are verses 7 to, what, uh, 11? And of course, these five verses record the death of Abraham. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Does that sound familiar? We've been talking about that, right? <laughs> in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the Hittites. 
There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac dwelt at Bir Laharoi. Bir Laharoi. Okay, when we read that Abraham was full of years, I think we have more than just the longevity of years being talked about per se. Look at this verse again. He dies of a good old age, an old man, full of years. What is going on there? I mean, there must be something else other than just the Hebrew author emphasizing that he lived a long life, right? He dies of a good old age, an old man full of years. Okay, we get the point, right? It's kind of like that passage with the uh, Magi where we read in, what is it, Matthew 1, verse 12, he rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, okay, you made your point. Anytime you see that in the Hebrew or Greek, something else is going on here. So if we're going to understand this and, and what's going on in this verse, I thought it would behoove us to turn our attention to the other Old Testament figures who also have this phrase, full of years, tied to their account of death. We find this phrase employed in reference to Isaac. In Genesis chapter 35, verses 28 to 29, we read, Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, right? So he lived five more years than his father Abraham. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days or full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. You almost have actually (laughs) verbatim going on there between Genesis chapter uh, 35 verses 28 to 29 and Genesis 25 verses 7 to 8. And next we find that the adventurous life of the great King David is represented as being closed at last with that tranquil evening glory, huh? He died in a good old age, full of years, riches, and honor. Also, we read of the great high priest uh, Jehida, whose history had been filled with peril, whose history had been filled with, with change, certainly with brave resistance and strenuous effort, that with all the storms behind him, he died at last, what? Full of days or full of years. And of course, lastly, we have the figure of Job, that typical record of the good man suffering and of the abundant compensations given by a loving God. He too dies with that deep impression of peace, which is breathed over it all. So Job died being old and full of years or full of days. And remember, the story of Job isn't so much about his patience as much as it is his impatience, right? Because Job was an orator. Job was an inquisitor. He was constantly asking questions and very decisive in understanding the responses. Well, in the narrative of the book of Job, while yes, we talk about his patience because he endured suffering, all the while he was constant in asking questions. To some degree, we could say that there was a degree of impatience, right? And what's so fascinating about this narrative, and a point I always like to draw out, is that Job isn't satisfied because he received an answer from God. Yes, God did give him an answer, reminding him that he wasn't there in creation, so who are you to say? But that was not what gave him peace, as much as it was him being in God's presence, you see. When we read that Job was satisfied, he was satisfied because he got an answer? No, 
because he was in God's presence. And if there was an answer, it was answer with a capital A, God himself. All that being said, in the figures that we have considered, we have all the instances of the occurrence of this phrase, full of years or full of days. And I think we can fairly say that in each one of them, the phrase is meant to suggest not merely, again, length of days, but some characteristic of the long life over and above its mere length. This wasn't about chronology per se, chronos, time as we might look at it horizontally, but kairos, purpose-driven time, God's time, God's grace time, how we might look at time vertically, right? While it is not in the Hebrew, there is a sense that when you read that phrase, full of years, it might also read satisfied with years because the men were satisfied with their life, having exhausted all of its possibilities, having nothing more left to wish for. In this vein, it was the popular writer Leon Bloy who once said, the only tragedy of life is not to have been a saint. The only tragedy of life is not to have been a saint. What is Leon Bloy talking about there? Well, we are given one life. Let's not spend it in turmoil and strife, but spend it giving glory to God that as St. Elizabeth of the Trinity would remind us, we might become the praise and glory of God. In the end, this phrase, my friends, full of years, points to a calm close, a peaceful close, with all desires gratified, with no desperate clinging to life, but a willingness to let it all go because all which it could have been has been attained. Brothers and sisters, length of days, competence, health, friends, are those important? Of course they are. But none of those or any other externals will make the difference between a life which in retrospect will seem to have been sufficient for our desires and one which leaves a hunger in the heart. Essentially, we could say it is possible and something we ought to be thinking about this evening in light of these verses, that we can make our lives full of spiritual satisfaction, that whether or not they run on to the apparent maturity of old age or whether they are cut short in the midst of our days, we may rise from the table feeling that life has satisfied our desires, met our anticipation, and been all very good. There is a series of very important verses that come to us from Wisdom, chapter 4, verses 7 to 15. I want to read to you these verses in the light, in the context of what we are talking about this evening. But the righteous man, though he die early, will be at what? Rest. Rest. Listen to verse 8. For old age is not honored for length of time, nor measured by number of years. But understanding is gray hair for men, and a blameless life is ripe old age. There was one who pleased God and was loved by him. And while living among sinners, he was taken up. 
He was caught up lest evil change his understanding or guile deceive his soul. For the fascination of wickedness obscures what is good, and roving desire perverts the innocent mind. Verse 13 reads, being perfected in a short time, he fulfilled long years. Let me read that verse again. Very important to what we are speaking to this evening. Being perfected in a short time, he fulfilled long years. For his soul was pleasing to the Lord. Therefore, he took him quickly from the midst of wickedness. Yet the people saw and did not understand, nor take such a thing to heart, that God's grace and mercy are with his elect, and he watches over his holy ones. Brothers and sisters, there are people, both old and young, who, whenever they look back, whether it be over a long track of years or, or over a short one, have nothing to say about it except vanity, oh vanities. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. A retrospect of weary disappointments and thwarted plans. A retrospect that when looking back and at the same time looking forward, when looking into the past and at the same time looking into the future, when the forward and the future is death itself, we cry, what a waste of time. Remember that the Latin word for vanity is uh, vanus. Vanus, it, it literally translates as emptiness or nothingness, a waste of time. We so often put an emphasis, and at times I think overemphasis, on vanity as being just an indulgence of what we look like when really it's that, but so much more. Because there are many things that we do that have nothing to do with what we look like that is simply a waste of time. And when we read those famous words, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and vexation of spirit, we should be reminded that the author there is looking back on his life and saying, I wasted time. And so what we have before us this evening is a call to be reminded that we've been given one life, and that is a life worth living. I was talking about Kronos and Kairos earlier. <laughs> well, do we allow God's grace time to define how we live on earth? You know, time is a very important topic in the Christian life, in the spiritual life. Because if we don't appreciate how God works in time, then I think we're going to miss something very important in our walk with God. That all God cares about is the present moment and invading that present moment with His grace. And when He does, it will now give new shape and form to how we think and what we do. And yes... Part of that grace is and will be reconciliation. That if you find yourself dwelling on your undoings from the past, if you find yourself lost in those tyranny of memories, God will free you from that past. God will free you from those memories. And He does so in His grace. He does so in His grace. And again, <laughs> we speak to this. Because it is my hope that if a book was to be written about our life, whoever authored that book could say 
He lived a life full of days. He lived a life full of years. Because if that book written about us says that, that means we lived a life of deep satisfaction. Have you ever been around someone who was a son or daughter of God who really walked with God at the end of their days? And there was just a calm, a peace that enfolded them. How do you think that happened? Did he or she just wake up one morning and say, well, I'm going to die today, so I'm going to be at peace with my life? No, no, no. Certainly, God's grace is extraordinary, and he can give us that supernatural grace to give us that deep peace, even if we lived a life that is without honor. He could still overcome that if we repent. But often what you find is that person who has that kind of peace, that kind of calm, is one who walked with God over an extended period of time. I had the blessed opportunity to be in the presence of a religious sister on one occasion some years ago. She died in her late 30s, so she still had a lot of years left by many accounts. But what did we read in in Wisdom chapter 4, verses 7 to 15? As I was by her bedside, I still have etched into my memory the peace on her face. She said very little with words, but she said so much with her smile, with her calm, peaceful smile as she passed. Amen. Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.